Hello and welcome to the Vision Source Exchange. I'm Chris Wolf, and um, we have a number of exciting people to talk about contact lenses today. I'm going to introduce them just in a second, but I think what is important is uh, the perspectives that they all share. So we've got two hours of content that is that are planned. We'll have a break in between. So there's wine and cheese, so that that should direct you back. But we're also going to have a similar conversation related locals in the second hour. So the first hour we're going to talk about uh, toric contact lenses, and um, and we're going to talk about from a, a perspective of what happens in kind of a global sense of what can we know about our patient populations within torics and what do we do as a profession related to torics, and then we'll talk a little bit more granular um, about what happens in specific practices, and then we also are going to talk about kind of the psychology the this, the the psycho, psychology of economics uh, related to why we do as providers what we do. And then we're going to kind of wrap it up with how can we remove those barriers that we have that are kind of built into our brains uh, and, and try to remove those barriers so that we can allow our patients to have access to the things that, that they need as opposed to kind of being barriered about that. So on the panel conversation today, we have uh, a couple of esteemed colleagues. We have Dr. Michelle Andrews from Cooper Vision. Uh, Michelle, give us a little bit of your background related to contact lenses and your role in Cooper Vision specifically. Yep, thanks, Chris. Um, thanks, everybody, for coming. Um, I've been with Cooper Vision, it'll be eight years this summer, um, supporting that entire time uh, the professional affairs organization um, and, and doctors who prescribe our products. So, our primary role is to ensure that all of the messages that you get and the tools that you get to help communicate our products to your patients are exactly as they should be and work for you um, as easily as possible. Uh, we do a lot with schools and colleges and adv advocacy, uh, but I would say that the majority of our time is spent making sure that you have uh, what you need. What I think has been fun to, to get to know Michelle over the last few years pretty closely is her ability to really encapsulate a, a global market and, and a market within, within the profession in general, within contact lenses, and then also kind of focus in on the, the whys and what's and how's. That, and it's been very enlightening to me. And she's very good at encapsulating the whole entire message and then wrapping it in a nice little bundle that, that allows me to kind of uh, resonate and, and take that home. So thanks, Michelle, for being on. Ethan Heisman. Uh, Ethan is, are you a cyclone or are you a, oh, a, a, no. a Hawkeye? Hawkeye. Yes. Okay. We have cyclones in our office, yeah. but yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> so Ethan, uh, Ethan practices in um, my, so, you know, if you're in Omaha or Lincoln, everything else is Western Nebraska, if you're in Nebraska. And so when I think about Iowa, I think Des Moines and Iowa City. So he's close to Des Moines, if you, if you know where Iowa is. But specifically, tell us about your practice. So tell we, us about your, your Absolutely. Town. So we have... Uh, we have, I have two partners in practice, and we have five associate doctors, so I have eight total doctors. And we have, currently we have three, practice, three practices, one in the western suburbs, two in the northern suburbs, and then next month we're going to open a fourth practice in the southern suburbs of Des Moines. So we're kind of surrounding the metro is the, is the plan that's working out. Yeah, Des Moines is just too big for you. Just too big for us, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so Dr. Heisman is, um, is a vision source uh, doctor, and he and I have, have had the pleasure many times to kind of communicate uh, virtually and a few times to communicate in person. So this has been fun to, not many people make me feel short. And I think it's, <laughs> we're the same height, but, uh, but anytime somebody's the same height as me, I feel shorter. So 
Thanks for being on. Absolutely. Uh, and then Aldo Zaccario, Aldo and I, uh, so Aldo, uh, I'm going to give him a little bit more introduction because it's, it's uh, and I'll let him kind of expand on it, but Aldo has a perspective of behavioral economics. Uh, and I think the first time Aldo and I had a conversation, we talked about Freakonomics and Super Freakonomics, and essentially it's understanding the whys behind the things that we do. And so, Aldo, thanks so much for, for being on. Uh, and tell us a little bit about kind of, I know I butchered that a little bit. No, but you did a great me, job. Tell us more specifically about uh, yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. wizardry that goes on in Dr. Zuccario's mind. Yeah, um, just like you said, I have a PhD in behavioral economics. Uh, I spend a lot of time thinking about the way we make decisions and why we make them in the way we do. Um, my, my role specifically is to sort of take that and crunch that down into something that we can understand and, and, and then apply. So it, it's really about sort of understanding why we make decisions and then helping people just kind of work through those. Awesome. Well, so I'm going to kind of just open it up. And, and sort of the first question or the first topic that I wanted to discuss was sort of a global market and, and the U.S. market related to toric contact lens prescribing habits. And toric con or an astigmatic patient. So, there's nobody better to talk about that than Dr. Andrews. So, Dr. Andrews, tell us a little bit about what's going on in the U.S. market. Sure. So, if we look across really a global population that gets mirrored here in the U.S., about 47% of patients have a clinically significant astigmatism. Now, the way we're defining clinically significant is a half diopter or more in at least one eye. So, almost 50% of the population. So, of course, we're interested because we know how many contact lens fits and how many contact lens products are sold in, in a toric modality. And in the U.S., in 2019, it was about 27%. So 47, I, sorry, I, I like to interrupt. So 47% of the population has clinically significant astigmatism, approximately 28% in 2019. Uh, and in 2022, we have data on that? We do. So we've made some progress. We're at 35%. So we're, we're making progress in that regard, but there's still this gap. And the gap, we believe, is primarily in those lower astigmats, right? We wouldn't leave a two and a quarter undercorrected or, or even higher. But those patients with 75 or, or one diopter of astigmatism oftentimes end up in a spherical lens. And so we believe that the majority of that gap is really sitting in that patient. And uh, so I don't know that... I've seen the number. Do you know how many, so of those patients, do you know what percentage of them are left under or like spherically equivalented at minus one, minus one and a quarter? We think that's the majority of that, of that oh, 10 that point is. gap or now what is a, as a nine point yeah. or eight point gap. It's falling right in that because you can't, you can't overcompensate or you can't, you can't fool the other people by spherically right. equivalenting them. Right. I think once you get that to that. It can spherically be. Spherically equivalenting them? Yeah, it's a verb. Okay. Um, you know, 175, two and a quarter and higher, yeah. they won't, ex they won't uh, accept that visually. But yeah. a patient with a minus 75 um, who's not offered some alternative might think that that's the best they can do. So you've got some survey data, and I know a lot of people in this room probably participated in some of that survey data. You've got survey data specifically related to vision source practices about what they think uh, they're doing for their patients. So do we think we're doing better as vision source offices than we maybe are or maybe the rest of the, of the population? Yeah, so we asked all of you. We sent out a survey. We had just over 200 responses back, 
And what you told us is that about 49% of your patients have clinically significant astigmatism. So matches perfectly. Mm. And then when we asked how many of those do you prescribe toric lenses to, your answer was about two-thirds. So if you take two-thirds of a half, you get to about that 35% mark. So I would say that the that based on that survey, that the doctors and vision source are about the same place we are in the U.S., making great progress against where we used to be, but still some opportunity remains. So what's interesting to me about that is I always like to, to think, uh, and I think a lot of us like to think as vision source doctors, like we're doing better. So what Ethan and I decided to do was we didn't know. We were actually just discussing this, and, and Ethan and I both said, well, I don't know what I wonder if my office is doing better, or are we lagging behind a little bit? So we, we looked at those numbers. Uh, Ethan, do you, you want to share your numbers with us? Yeah. So, so what we did was we tried to break it down, uh, and I, I hope I described this correctly. We tried to be uh, similar in the way, that we would, um, the way that we would evaluate our practices. So we looked at contact lens fits, so astigmatic fits in our practices. Uh, and we looked at how many uh, compared to spherical fits compared to multifocal fits. We'll talk about the multifocal fits later. And we, uh, Michelle, we had no idea. We just, we, on, on a whim, we decided we would do this. And so then, um, and then we counted them the same pretty mm -hmm. much. And then we looked at, uh, we did look at units sold as well for toric, uh, multifocal, and spherical lenses. So uh, were we better? You know, turns out, uh, no, we weren't. <laughs> uh, and that's one of those fun things because, like, we, we measure a lot of practice metric, metrics. I mean, we keep track of a lot of different aspects of the practice. But this is something that had never really occurred to me to even try to evaluate. But, yeah, my perception was, oh, no, I, I have to be close to that 50% mark. Like, if somebody has three-quarter diopters still, of course I'm fitting them in a toric lens. But, no, what you don't measure, you don't know. And we hadn't measured it, and so we didn't know. So even in our practice, like, we have a huge opportunity uh, for the astigmatic patients, like you said, not only to improve their vision, but like we're going to talk about improve their comfort with contact lenses too, because we're we're pretty far under index also. Well, I think so. So the numbers specifically were, I think, uh, so your practice. If we looked at at toric population of around twenty eight percent, your practice had thirty six percent, even though we're not at the forty nine percent, kind of better than what the averages were based on those those metrics that we used. My office, do you think it was better or worse? It was worse than Ethan's actually in, in toric in torque fit. So we were at 30%. So Ethan kind of outdid us in uh, in torics and in toric fits. Now I would just attribute that to his population is way more <laughs> astigmatic than my population. But in, in any case, um, so I thought that was really interesting. The other thing that you mentioned, Ethan, about um, about the uh, the opportunities that we have. How do you look at those opportunities differently now after you've dug into your deep data? Well, I think patients don't know what they don't know, and they don't know what we don't tell them. And so I think a lot of patients, it's just kind of, um, you know, that experience of this is as good as it can get because this is what they've experienced. Uh, this actually just came up recently because we acquired an established practice, um, and that practitioner, like there's a, a really a large number of patients that we're encountering that do have a significant amount of astigmatism that have just been in spherical lenses all along. And when they come back every year, you know, how are your contact lenses? Oh, they're fine. Just because they don't know any different. Yeah. But now, since we've acquired that practice, I you know, know that we're kind of proactively, you know, let's refit those patients in a toric lens. And it's kind of one of those responses when they come back of, oh, wow, this is, this is great. Because they just don't know if we, 
if we aren't talking with them. So there's two things that I actually, uh, and I've talked about this before on the podcast, but there's two things that I've gained from uh, sort of, and, and I think Dr. Barrent is in here in our office and Dr. Blumenstock, uh, but, but one of the things, Dr. Barrent kind of led a uh, sort of a, an office-based kind of see how this lens like evaluates in our office. And what we did was we followed a very kind of scale your contact lens comfort on a scale of one to 10, scale your quality of vision, scale of one to 10, scale, there's a, a third component. But that actually has resonated with us long term. We continue to do that now, even after that evaluation period for patients, because it, it removes the question, Ethan, of, oh, everything's fine. What does mm -hmm. fine mean? It's fine. I'm married. I've got kids. If it's fine, a six, I know what a fine means. <laughs> You've been gone too long. <laughs> You've been gone too long, Dad. Uh, and so, so anyway, um, but it tells me is a fine a nine, because that tells me really good, right, from an NPS right. standpoint. Do you do anything like that? Uh, we don't, no, we don't have a specific number. We don't get that that specific, but I really like that idea. Yeah, it's been helpful. It's yeah. been very helpful because I look at, so now on my, our entrance exam, we have those, our entrance kind of questionnaire, everybody that wears contact lenses answers that. And so I know if a patient's an 8 to a 10, like from a net promoter score standpoint, they're probably pretty happy they're going to be promoting. Um, but if they're a 7 or a 6, and, and I, I know I'm walking in on that patient knowing I'm probably going to fix something. Or I'm going to at least try to fix something. It changes my, my mentality and it removes the barrier of like, I don't want to tinker with it if it's, if it's not broken right. and you're telling me it's not broken. But also, I think a lot of times patients are worried that, they're, uh, that you're going to take something away from them if they complain about it. For sure. Oh, I, my vision's not very good. Oh, well, I guess you can't wear contacts anymore. Or my eyes are kind of red and irritated. Well, you can't wear them as long as you can. It's like there, there's, there's this little fear, I think. It, when I ask questions of, of patients about that, I'm like, Tell me, like I'll say, how many hours do you wear your contacts? And you can see them kind of, am I going to tell you the truth? Or, you know, and, and, uh, and they're kind of worried that if, if they tell you the right answer, actually, why would they do that, Aldo? Why would they worry about that, do you think? Well, there's a, there's a couple of reasons why. But one of the things that they're most worried about is that you're going to give them some negative feedback. Hmm. And that doesn't make them happy. And, and you'll, keep, you'll hear from me in a minute how important that that happy feeling is. And so I'm willing to trade a lot of things for a little bit of happiness. And, and qu quite frankly, that, 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 that little bit of worry. Now, if you change your question just a little bit, um, you get them to feel happy and tell you the truth. So instead of asking, like, how many hours are you wearing your contact lenses, I would ask how. How? So how, how are, you wearing, are you wearing your contact ah. lenses? How are you wearing your contact okay. lenses? Um, and that, in, that invites a completely different response, completely different part of your head's going, and, and then they, they won't get into that spot. Okay. Well, I, I think, uh, Ethan, you, uh, before we go to Aldo to kind of explore more of those points, because, because I think that's really interesting. I got a whole bunch more questions for you. Ethan, you made a comment also about um, visual discomfort being represented as physical discomfort. What do you mean by that? Absolutely. So this, I became aware of this through one of Cooper Vision studies a few years ago. Um, just the fact that quite often patients' lack of clear vision or a little bit of blurred vision will be perceived as lens discomfort. Okay, so that can come in uncorrected cylinder or it can come in near eye strain. But the studies are very clear that that can be perceived. It's an internal, that blur is internal, but it can be perceived as an external symptom of dryness or discomfort. 
So my approach for the last few years has been if I have a patient who comes in with a complaint of uncomfortable contact lenses, the first thing I do is look at the visual acuity. And so if it's 20-20 minus and they have three-quarters diopter cylinder and they're in a spherical lens, they're going in a toric lens. And it's amazing how many times you can keep them in the same material, same lens material, and the comfort improves significantly. And we can talk to this a little bit about, too about the Maida Energist coming too. Like we really see it in that, where if they have, you know, end of day contact lens discomfort, um, is it fatigue it's fatigue. Of dryness? Correct. And that's borne out a lot of times at our office. And the one that I always think about and tell people about is my own 19 year old daughter had been in the reveal daily contact lenses forever. And she happened to be home over Christmas. And like she spent her whole Christmas break on her phone watching TikTok and Netflix. And we had the My Day Energist, and so I just gave them to her and I didn't say anything. I just said, hey, I want you to try these contacts. And a week later, I just said, hey, how does this feel? And she goes, oh my gosh, this material is so much more comfortable. Mm. Same material. Same material. Yeah. Just taking away that blur, yeah. taking away that visual blur that registers as discomfort very frequently. I'm kind of biased in that because it, immediately when I think about dry eye symptoms, I know that's true. I know what you're telling me is true. It's kind of buried in the back of my mind. Uh, I also know that from a binocular vision standpoint, it's true as well that that can drive mm -hmm. some of our dryness sensation. But I am, I am just by default thinking about the ocular surface disease that exists. So I often make that mistake where I just, I go straight for ocular surface disease. And there's also this sort of implicit kind of thought process, even with a really good toric design. That if I go from a spherical contact lens, it can't be the vision because if I go from a spherical contact lens to a torque contact lens, that prism ballast is going to be more. You're going to feel it. But you're saying if if that's if the case is that the visual the visual system is or the vision is limiting the the the, the feeling of the eyes, then uh, I I shouldn't worry about that prism ballast because you're saying it's going to it's going to make it many times it will better. right and yeah and you'll notice that when you when you do chase the ocular surface in the material, when you're on your second or third yeah. lens and they still have the same complaint, then really go back to the visual visual clarity part of it. Yeah, so I think that's the, that's the, real, the real question is, from a clinical standpoint, so we can improve our practices, tell me the things that now you are thinking about to differentiate between is this ocular surface disease related, like what's your thought process versus is this vision related? Right. So personally now, I go, you know, traditional acuity first, binocular acuity second. And, and so I'm going to pause you there. When you're taking acuity, because have you trained your team to understand the difference between we pushed them to 2020 minus one and I'm listening for these little right. nuances and struggle? Or are you actually the one that's listening to the struggle? I will nuances? listen to the struggle. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. You, and you can tell the, the difference. I need to do that. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, and then we, I do go to binocular vision next, and then ocular surface. And it really streamlines the process because so often those first two are the culprits before you get to, to the actual ocular surface disease. Super helpful. Yeah. Okay, so um, now, Aldo, I get to come back to you. <laughs> so, Aldo, um, tell us a little bit about, so we got a little there related to kind of the why, like what types of questions, how we ask those questions. I think that's pretty help, helpful is how do you wear your contact lenses? What would I expect differently? We'll start there. If I ask that question, instead of having the hand wringing and the consternation about telling me the truth of, of 14 or 16 hours, because what I'll usually jump in and when I see that is I'll tell the patient, well, look, it's, uh, I'm not going to browbeat you. 
I ask that question because I want to know if I need to put you in a material that is doing something different or we're seeing signs of, of problems. Uh, I would know that it's maybe related to wear and I need to do something different. So I'm kind of removing that pain from them right away as opposed to just removing it immediately yeah, yeah. by saying how. But how, what type of response should I expect when I ask you how are you wearing your contact lenses versus how long are you wearing your contact lenses? What would be the difference for me clinically to know that yeah. or to hear that? Yeah, so, um, so let, me, let me take a step back and just quickly just tell you sort of what's going on between that left and right ear. Um, as, you're, as you're asking sort of these questions. So think of our brains as really two parts. There's a developed brain. Michelle and Ethan talked about sort of you know, the science of what's going on in, in the practice. And the developed brain, it really understands that. And sometimes I want the developed brain to answer a question. When I ask you how, developed brain stands up and says, hey, let me tell you what I'm really doing. Uh, you know, I got the green light on this one. I'm going straight there's this other half of your brain. It's called the primal brain. I call it the lazy brain. It's my is favorite part. Is it the same part. thing as what people call like the lizard brain? The, uh, is it the same? Yeah, it might be the lizard brain. Sometimes you'll hear it as system one, system two, uh, system two. We talked two. about that before. Yeah, you'll yeah. hear it as a... So the as lazy a, brain. The lazy brain. Okay. But, but I say lazy brain because most people will remember that. I said the lazy brain, they'll go there something. Um, but the lazy brain's always on. Lazy brain. Lazy brain understands two things. It's a really simple thing. If I do something, I get a reward. That's, that's, the, that's, that's the point. Now, you ask the question where I could be right or wrong. Now, the lazy brain stands up and goes, I'm wrong. I don't get a reward. I'm not sure I want to answer this question because if I'm wrong, I don't get a reward. And now I'm like, now I'm debating. Now, the right, the, the developed brains don't know. We have to tell the truth. Let's, let's get on with it. The lazy brains, no, no, I, I want a reward out of this. What do I have to say in order to get to reward? I don't even care what it is. It doesn't matter. So there's a and battle. There's so there's a battle. a battle going on. And you'll see some hand wringing. People are not quite sure. They'll squirm. All sorts of things are happening. But you probably won't get the answer that you want. And that's what's going on inside of our heads almost all the time. The trick is, how do we help the lazy brain sort of get its reward? Um, and often I get asked the question about, you know, how do we, how do we encourage welcome behavior change? Whether it's a question in the office or, or, or other aspects, is how do you get that welcome uh, behavior? We have to realize that the lazy brain is always on. And, um, and helping the lazy brain give you the good answer, well, well that's the trick in it. So that applies to patient conversations. So tell me, like, from a contact lens standpoint, um, maybe uh, are there other t ways we should be asking questions besides the how? Uh, as a doctor to the patient to help the lazy brain do what it, what it wants to do? Yeah, there's, there's a number of, uh, of aspects uh, that we can look at. You know, when you're thinking about it, um, what's, what someone's going through is this, this notion of either they're worried. So there's a loss aversion. or Sometimes there's a regret. I didn't actually do what they told me not to do, and now they're going to look at me bad or they're going to do that. So, so if we think about the fact that there is regret, not following your direction. There's loss aversion because I didn't follow your, your direction. There's also rules of thumb. People live by rules of thumb all the time. If we're cognizant of those things, those questions that you'd ask, mm -hmm. um, they'd be cognizant of the fact that I'm not going to put you in a place where you're going to feel regret. Um, and, and how is really the, one of the best ways to start the question? How do you wear them? 
How do you go throughout your day? Mm. How are you getting by? Um, the moment I, I get you into a position where you're, there's a right or a wrong, or at least there's a perceived right and wrong, um, the lazy brain sort of takes over and goes, look, I'm, I'm going to put out some effort. I'm not going to get a reward. Why do we want to do this? And you end up not doing it. So then that's related to patience. What, how does this apply to us? Like Ethan and I, why aren't we, or how, aren't we doing 49% of, of all of our contact lens fits being torqued? Like, yeah. like we have our lazy brains as providers. And those lazy brains apply to our patients. But we get in clinic, we're busy, we got four practices, but we can't go into Des Moines because we're not big enough boys to do it. Uh, and so, <laughs> and so, so, uh, so we, we can't do it, but, but, but we, we're busy, right? Our practices are busy. Yeah. And so part of this has to be related to like, man, I do this too. I, it's the last patient a day. You're kind of like, I know I'm kind of on autopilot. This should be a simple slam dunk, right? And then any extra effort. So I try to go in and, and be aware of that, conscious of that, right, Ethan? I mean, you tell me this happens. Abs absolutely. Yeah. Every day. Yeah. And so, so you're kind of like aware of it. And then you almost have to like, okay, no, I'm not going to just go on autopilot. This is going to be something that we're going we're gonna to focus on, right? So how do I avoid that autopilot in things I'm not aware about? Yeah. So let me first tell you what's going on in, in your mind. So the first thing that's going on in your mind is uh, you've got a little doubt. Because remember what I said, the lazy brain works in a very simple mechanism. I do an action, I get a reward. And now you're thinking, I'm going to do this action, I might not get the reward. Or uh, the other part of the lazy brain, and, and, and one of my favorite reasons for calling it the lazy brain is because it is lazy. And you're going to say, I'm going to put out effort, and they're not going to like it, or they're not going to say yes. And now I'm going to be um, not only not happy, but even a little bit mad. And so why would I end my day with that? Why would I do that? And, and really what we're doing is we, we've got these rules of thumb. And, um, you know, and, and it's funny, I keep saying the lazy brain, but, but you'll understand that um, it's going through a mechanism. Your brain is actually going through a mechanism. And that mechanism is really important. Uh, there are chemicals in our brain that, that we work towards. There's four chemicals. Sometimes you'll hear it as dose, but there's four really important chemicals. The first is dopamine. You do any small little act, you get a little hit of dopamine. How many of us like to check the box, draw the line, make the list, scroll off the list, do the little task, do the easy part? That's all dopamine. And we love it. We want all of it. We want more of it. We get excited when we get it. I make lists all the time. I, I make, in fact, who was I talking? I was talking to Michelle. I make, I do the thing so I can make the list so I can cross it off and give myself a little hit of dopamine. We do that all the time. It's really important to the way our brain works. There's another chemical, and, and, and it's called oxytocin. That's when we see a baby, we see a flower, we get hugged. It's the happy, it's the happy drug. That's why we like to spend so much time together. It's why COVID was so brutal on all of us, is we just couldn't get uh, any of that. And then there's serotonin. Serotonin is an accomplishment. If I tell you good job, good work, nice job today, good work today, excellent day. Those, that's all a hit of serotonin. We like that. We don't say enough of that. As practitioners, um, to your staff, good job. Great what you did today. Thank you. Little hits of serotonin, and all of a sudden, you'll see behaviors change. Um, you won't have to twist an arm. You won't have to, you'll, you'll do very little to get someone to do. The last one is endorphins. You heard about endorphins. 
if you work really hard, you get that, that workout rush. It doesn't really apply for this. For this, it's really about uh, dopamine and serotonin. And that lazy brain, it only works for those things. So when you're thinking about it, um, the, the, what stops a practitioner, you learn that you're going to put on an effort and you might not get that. And so you're like, you know what? I know that if I do what I normally do, I get a little hit. So I'll just do what I normally do. So the normal, so I want to get back to the rest of that, but, but to sort of encapsulate this, because it does happen, right? Patient comes in and they say, yeah, things are fine. And you know that last year they bought an annual supply of contact lenses and you didn't have to do a lot of work for that. And they're not going to tell you anything else. And so, well, the, the dopamine hit immediately is I'm going to do exactly what I need to do and, and uh, continue doing what they've been doing and not dig a little deeper and not ask more questions. And then I get my, I get my reward. You get your reward. You didn't put out a lot of effort. Everybody walks away happy. Yeah. Except for the patient. Except for the patient. <laughs> Everybody but the patient. Okay. So keep going. Then serotonin. Serotonin is, uh, is really about doing a good job. Um, it, it's the achievement. Uh, so if you feel like there's a, an achievement, we don't create achievements for ourselves. And as practitioners, that achievement, you solved your daughter's problem. That was a hit of serotonin, a huge hit of serotonin. She came back to you and said, hey, you know what? It must be a different material. And we'll rationalize it. And it's, I mean, you, you'll, you, you, it's the same material. I know she's not saying something right. But from your perspective, it's, it, I fixed the problem. And, and, and making sure that we get into a situation where that's what's happening. And reminding ourselves that that small step, that small step happens with a little dopamine. Now, the good thing about the lazy brain, and because, and I, and I love it, I spend most of my time thinking about it, um, it can anticipate. So if you do it a couple of times, It'll go, hey, you know what? What you learned from your daughter, and that felt so good, your brain's going, we should try this again. We should try this again. So can I ask you a question? So for my daughter, and I think quite often for the patients who come in, if we don't use like a comfort index score, yeah. the, like my daughter didn't know there was a problem. And the patient didn't know, doesn't necessarily know that there's a problem. So is there any difference in our lazy brain reaction in that situation versus the one where the patient comes in and says, oh my gosh, my, these contacts are terrible. I can't wear them. I got to take them out at noon. Is there any difference in our reaction to those two situations? Yeah. So if somebody comes in with that problem, developed brain takes over and goes, oh, we're going we're gonna to fix it. We're going to fix right. it. Lazy brain is not there and you, and you, and, and you fix it. Um, but those don't happen you know, every time. And, and so when the other ones show up, that's where that's where your thirty percent is instead of your thirty six or, or or the right number, and that difference is not in that acute patient because your you know your developed side will will take control and go we we got this. Um, it's 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 the one that's on the margin where you go I don't know now I got to put out some effort, and then your lazy brain goes well wait a second if we're going to put out effort and I'm not going to get any reward for this I'm not sure we're going to do this, <laughs> and that and then and that's it. Although when you think about the dopamine and the serotonin, uh, they're, they're obviously triggered differently, but we've got to have both. And so when I'm thinking about like our practice and the things that we would do from a contact lens prescribing standpoint, it would seem that one happens relatively quickly and one comes from something that's going to be a little more delayed. But I need them, I need them both and I probably need something to happen quickly in one of them. 
yeah, you, you, the the more we set up um, opportunities for that dopamine to happen, it, it'll encourage the repetitive. Um, and then when the when the accomplishments achieved, it feels really good. And so um, for for most things, it's really about the number of tries. And we limit ourselves in the number of tries. And we limit ourselves in the number of tries because it becomes a yes, no, and then I don't want the fail. But if we set up as the try as being the success, not the win or the fail, then, then it changes the dynamic. I'm willing to try many more times if every time I try, I feel good about the try. And then I know that a great number of those tries will turn into a yes, and then the serotonin kicks in and I feel even better, which encourages and spurs on the try. But the problem with, with that related to contact lenses is we have a patient that was going to do going to go down this path and going to continue to purchase and then going to walk out. And I have no idea mentally that they were unhappy because I didn't ask the question. But some percentage of them are going to drop out of contact lenses. And, and Michelle, do you have that data in terms of like who's dropping out of contact lenses more? Is it spherical fits? Is it torque patients? Torque patients that so, do you know that? that? We do. Um, about 16% of patients drop out of contact lenses. But in your toric patient base, your astigmatic patient base that yeah. may not be in toric lenses, it's as high as 65. So they are quietly quitting. Yeah. Is that a way to think about it? Yeah. So, so, then, so then I go down this path, and it goes a year or two years. But the problem with, with understanding the lazy brain and the dopamine hit now is, well, I can get my serotonin hit from just keeping doing what we're doing because I get this sense of accomplishment. At the end of the day, I get a look at our receipts collected, et cetera, and we know that we had a good day. But I don't have the immediate, like, and so if I, if I avoid the refit into a toric lens, for example, then uh, I don't have that no, I don't have the negative aspects, but I don't get the dopamine either. So, uh, so in the sense of now we switch that and I'm going to refit a patient into a toric lens who might not buy the annual supply today that while they're there, and then they got to come back in a week and maybe they'll, they'll come back and maybe they'll be happy, but I'm delaying all that gratification. So how can I time, and maybe you don't have the answer, maybe Ethan and I have to hash through this, but how can we shrink that time delay so when I make the effort to fit that patient who has astigmatism more appropriately, when they are on the margins, when they are feeling fine and seeing fine, uh, that I can, I can have an immediate dopamine hit so I don't have that resistance of my lazy brain? Yeah, no, that, that, it's a good question. Um, in fact, that, 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 that math you just walked through that, that loss aversion math. You're like, you know what? Um, that lazy brain just stood up and just said, hey, whoa, maybe I don't need to do all that. Um, and, and, and what helps is how many times do you get your patients to say no? You might have to be reminded that they don't say no very often. That, in fact, you'll have to struggle to find the, the instance where you gave your patient a, a wholehearted recommendation and said, they said, wait, because we do a lot of loss aversion. We do a lot of this walking around going, you know, I'm going to do this, and they're not going to do that, and I had that anyways, and, 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 and one in the bag is better than trying to get two, and I'm not going to do that. And, 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 and there's a lot of really good reasons why I'm backing off. And that really is just your lazy brain standing up going, you know what, it's going to take a lot of effort, and I'm not putting it in. Um, but look at, your, look at your numbers. Give yourselves the evidence. Much like you did for this, mm -hmm. you'll find out. Um, and, and, and while I don't know, but I, I, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll make a solid, educated guess because 
every time I ask people to do this, I end up on the right side of the fence, um, that it doesn't happen very often. And that it is worth the, the effort. And that it is worth changing your question so, they're, so they're, that they, they don't have to feel like they have to mask it. And then you go ahead and, and continue to do what you do. And you'll, you'll discover that, uh, that those incremental uh, bits of happiness, um, they will change your attitude towards it. And without really restructuring what you do and how you do it and, and, and trying to change your practice in a big way, um, you'll see these incremental uh, gains that will happen. And all of a sudden, you'll look back in a year, a year and a half, and you're like, oh, my God, how, how did we do that? Even understanding, so thanks, Al. I think that's, that is very helpful. Understanding that lazy brain, you and I have discussed a little bit about what we might take home and change the way we practice, how we would change our approach to astigmatic patients. So first, uh, I think about, all right, well, how can I get an immediate dopamine hit that, uh, that is going to allow me to do what the patient needs to have done as opposed to what might be the easiest thing for us to do, right? Removing that mm -hmm. barrier. One of the thoughts I had, um, which I think is, which I'd like to get your reaction to is, well, you know, it, historically speaking, I would charge a toric lens fit when I fit a toric lens. But as I've, I've, I've thought about Aldo's and trying to remove that temporal delay between when I fit the toric lens and when we sell a toric lens, if, if it's a new fit, if it's a refit, is there any advantage to okay, I have a different fit fee we, you know, for a spherical lens, for a toric lens, for a multifocal lens. And this isn't a, a recommendation on what you should charge or how much you should charge, any of that sort of thing. It's, it's sort of a conversation of, all right, well, wait, I have a patient that has astigmatism. Maybe the fit is an astigmatic fit over some certain threshold. And if the patient winds up as a spherical lens, it doesn't matter to me one way or the other. I'm discussing the patient's astigmatism. I'm discussing the comp complexities of that. I'm discussing the, the ins and outs of maybe why they would use a, a toric contact lens. But even when we fall back on a spherical lens, right? It's, it's, it's about the complexity of that fit and the discussions that go along with it as opposed to, okay, well, now I'm charging you because you wound up in a, in a toric lens. So we get the immediate dopamine hit that Aldo's describing from the fit fee that is slightly higher than, than a spherical lens fee. And then we get a more delayed uh, satisfaction because we are going to be able to satisfy more patients, and that gives us our serotonin later on. Have you tried that at all? No. I was fascinated by that when we talked about that the other day because I hadn't considered it, of basing the contact lens fitting fee based on the refractive error, not the lens chosen. Yeah. And so even if there's three-quarters adapter cylinder regardless of the type of lens, it's going to an astigmatic fit. And then would you extrapolate into multifocal also? That I even probably, if there's some kind of ad, yeah. no matter what, you're doing that. No, I think it's actually a more logical approach because from what we know, if we do have that astigmatic patient and we do go in a spherical lens, we know from the research that patient is going to be less satisfied and have more problems and more likely be back in our chair for something related to the contact lenses. And I mean, that's kind of how we're basing these fees on the complexity, the time, and everything else. So I actually think that makes a lot of sense based on the realities of the time we're going to spend with that patient. You know, the other thing, if, we, if we're try, trying to, again, it's not, always, it's not really about dollars, right? I mean, it, it is because that's part of, of what's, what can be a reward, a cookie. 
so to speak. That, um, but you know, we we kind of did some math about how much you know uh, annual revenue uh, is generated from a toric lens patient in your office and my office compared to a spherical mm -hmm. lens patient. So again, to try to to yeah, immediately get that that dopamine hit to try to again the whole goal here is to remove ourselves from being lazy. And uh, if that's the case, okay, well, what's one of the things we can do to know for sure that if this patient is, a, uh, we're fitting this patient in a toric lens, it's going to provide a reward, right? So what we did was we looked at, okay, how many, how many, we did the same thing. What's our, what's our different fit fees? Uh, and what's the different annualized cost of an annual supply of a toric contact lens versus a spherical contact lens? And so uh, who had a higher fit fee? On oh, I don't group. remember on the fit. Was it yours? Yeah, I think, I think I was. It became slightly. a little bit of a competition. But the, yeah, it was close. It was close. <laughs> the point is, is that uh, in order to make so, if, if for every patient, I think the answer was for every patient that we fit in a toric lens, Ethan makes eighty dollars more for that for that year for that patient. I make ninety dollars, right? So, so those those differences was just like, look, again, it was just another trigger in our minds. It's like if we're looking to to advance. Uh, to one, primarily, take better care of patients, right? So we ask better questions, we provide them with better vision. That's the, that's the primary thing that we're working on. But, but to remove the lazy brain, uh, what we decided is, okay, well, maybe we, we go down these other paths and, okay, I need to think about this in, in different ways. One way we're going to think about it is maybe we consider, uh, and maybe you don't, but maybe you consider, okay, I'm going to, I know that it's going to be fit for the type of prescription they have as opposed to the type of lens they get into. But if we don't decide not to do that, maybe we're not going to do that, we can at least calculate in our practices what's the, the revenue that we're going to generate for taking care of that patient uh, who has a toric lens. What's that extra annualized revenue? Uh, and now you're talking, I mean, $90 per patient per year. If you think about like, you know, what, what did you know your average? I don't know this. We didn't do this. Do you know your average per patient revenue? Oh, um, our average, it varies. It varies from doctor to doctor in the practice, but all of us think are around the $450 per patient range. Is that about right? I'm asking my partners out here. Is it higher than that? I know Dr. Bells is with vision therapy especially, but it's it's in the higher four hundred dollars per patient. So I think the bottom line with that, I mean, is is I think the take home is okay. So eighty dollars more per patient to again remove this barrier from the lazy brain. Uh, okay, I know I'm going to get a dopamine hit because I know that's going to be the case. Um, it's going to be more valuable to the practice. Talking about your incremental advances, Aldo, and then the um, the that's like what sixteen percent increase. Something like that, sixteen yeah. to twenty percent. And I think so many, so many of the things patient. that we, you know, hear about the exchange is how do we increase revenue without seeing having to see more patients? Yeah. And especially in our practice, even like we both thought we were doing a great job, um, but even in our practices, seeing where that opportunity is and extrapolating that out, you know, that eighty dollars or ninety dollars per patient for that all those astigmatic patients that we have that opportunity for, that ends up being a tremendous financial opportunity that's that's just sitting there for us without seeing any additional patients. And like you said, it's the best care for the patient. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. I always allow when Michelle's on the podcast to summarize everything that we've said. And I kind of, because she does such a good job of it. So what are your parting thoughts kind of thinking through this, uh, Michelle? Um, 
What's your take home? Thanks, Chris. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> you do such a good job of it always. I thought I'd throw it back to you. I sh I'm sure I can summarize, but I won't do as good a job as you do. Here's what, I, here's what I'm going to do. You know, I, I think about um, you know, what Aldo said about this logical side of the brain. I, I guess I'd encourage you to think about it as Cooper Vision's kind of checked all the boxes for you on the logical side of your brain, right? The science is there that patients love to see the best that they can. And three to one, they'd want that toric lens over a sphere. So you know that if you take that chance, if you take that try, they'll be happy. One of the barriers is parameters aren't available. Well, the parameters are available. Reveal toric, almost 4,400 parameters, round the clock, 10 degrees, up to two and a quarter sill. You have the lenses that you need right there available to you for your patients. So that barrier is out of the way. Time. You know, we talk about the time. Well, Ethan, you talk about more time when you don't do the toric lens and chasing down all of these 65% these, the of patients that are working their way toward uh, dropping out. Put the toric lens on, it settles. The actual fitting process is no longer than a sphere when you, when you get the patient in the right lens. So what I would say is we've taken care of all the things on the left brain, customer brand, great, great profitability story. You've shown us some of the math. So I would encourage you to put all your effort into the try. You know, as Aldo said, that try is going to give you that dopamine rush, knowing at the other end that I'm going to have a happy patient who sees better, who stays in their lenses, and tells a whole bunch of friends. So I'd invest in the, the dopamine rush from the try, and I'd put a bunch of gold stars all over someplace in my back room every time I did it. Mm, every time you tried. <laughs> every time I tried. Yeah. And so I think that's, I think as we get new technology that becomes available, so we now have, you know, the, the My Day, uh, the my day, my day Energist, new technology. Ethan's already shared good, good uh, experiences with that. We've had great experiences with patients in the same way. Um, but it's figuring out that try, right? And then, and then giving yourself the reward for that try. Oh, I have one thought on that. Yeah. Because, you know, you talk about confidence and what gets people to, to try. Um, I have this great quote, and I can't even source who it is. I'll have to find who it is. But the, the line is, the actions of confidence come first, the feelings of confidence later. Like that action gets you that dopamine rush. You can't will your way into confidence. You've got to do. And when you do, you're like, look what I did. And it ties right into what Aldo has said. Look what I did. Just go for it. Awesome. Well, first, if you want to stick around for the second hour, we will be having a very similar conversation related to multifocal conduct. And um, if not, you're going to be not as good when you go to the next uh, expanded content. <laughs> I promise you for that. So uh, thanks so much, Aldo. Thank you. Ethan, Michelle, as always, thanks. it's been a pleasure. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. It's been great.